welcome to a brand new episode of Seize the Moment podcast. Today we have a very special guest. So today we have on Lee McIntyre. He's a research fellow at the Center for Philosophy and History of Science at Boston University, formerly executive director of the Institute for Quantitative Social Science at Harvard University. He has taught philosophy at Colgate University, Boston University, Simmons University, Tufts, Experimental College, and Harvard Extension School. And his new book, coming out on August 22nd, is called On Disinformation, How to Fight for Truth and Protect Democracy. Welcome, welcome, Lee. It's great to have you on. Oh, thanks very much for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. And so, Lee, in this book, Rob, deny, and I love, I love how this starts. Just This is amazing. Uh, so, denialism is not a mistake. It's a lie. It's crucial to distinguish between ordinary misconceptions and targeted manipulation, between misinformation and disinformation. Those in the media, government, education, and the rest of us have got to stop thinking of our current epistemic crisis as if it were some sort of accident or natural disaster. It is instead a coordinated campaign being run by nameable individuals and organizations whose goal is to spread disinformation out to the masses in order to foment dis doubt, division, and distrust and create an army of deniers. The truth is in dying, it's being killed. People who do not wake up one day and spontaneously wonder if the California wildfires were caused by a Jewish space laser, or if the COVID-19 vaccines might contain microchips. Those are instead the result of a propaganda campaign that was deliberately engineered to raise doubt where there was none, because it served the interests of the people who invented it. These sorts of interests can be economic, political, or ideological. But the point is that denialism is intended to benefit the people who create the lies, not the people who believe them. Mm. So I love it. And the first thing I'm going to ask is, and I'm sure you've been asked this question a million times. So how do we now distinguish what you're saying between some of the stuff that we actually hear from conspiracy theorists? Because if you think about it, this sort of does yeah. kind of read a, like a conspiracy theory manifesto. You know, I love that question. And you're hitting me with a hard one right away, which is just what you should do with a philosopher. Um, the Conspiracy theories are, there's a problem with them because of the way that they're structured. The problem is not usually the content, because some conspiracies end up being true. The problem is that the way that conspiracy theories respond to evidence. What normally happens with a conspiracy theory is if there's any evidence in its favor, they'll take it, right? Cherry pick that evidence. That's wonderful. You know, see, we told you. And if there's no evidence, then they say that just shows you how good the conspirators are. Right. Which means that in a way, the conspiracy theory is kind of hermetically sealed from any sort of challenge. And that's really the direct opposite of what science does. Uh, I mean, science is open to um, refutation. Sci you know, scientific hypothesis is one where the scientists will say, if you could show me this, you know, that would convince me. Now, mm -hmm. I used some language in there that was a little hot. And this mm -hmm. book is a little hot because this is, uh, you know, I mean, it's a tiny little uh, manifesto. You know, it looks like Mao's little red book, right? It's mm -hmm. a, or the <laughs> take it with you to the revolution. So the language is a little hot, but uh, I believe every word of what you, you said there, I hope I wrote it, um, which in, it sounds a little bit like a conspiracy because it is a conspiracy. There, there are people behind it. And if you read about uh, how information warfare works, one of the points is to cloak the fact that it's disinformation. Now, in the book, 
uh, I have a lot. So it's a short book, but quite a, a bit at the end is footnotes. And I give a lot of references. So I have the receipts. I mean, I can provide evidence uh, for the sorts of claims uh, that I've made. Um, you know, the, the one that, that always gets people is the question of where the conspiracy, where the idea that there were um, tracking microchips in the COVID vaccines, where did that come from? So it turns out it came from a Russian troll farm. Russian mm -hmm. intelligence, uh, you know, was the origin for that. Now that sounds like a conspiracy, you know, ooh, they want you to believe this, except there's evidence for it. The, 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 there was an article in the Wall Street Journal based on work at the de defense, uh, uh, the DIA. And uh, it, it's, you know, there, there's something to, to show for it. Mm -hmm. So again, the language is a little hot, but I've got the receipts. I love it. Yeah, and I, I believe there are a bunch of Russian bots uh, propagating uh, misinformation, right? If, if I'm not mistaken, I haven't reviewed that in a while, but I believe it's on Twitter. Oh, yeah. Those Russian, yeah, especially during the oh, 2016 election. Oh, oh, yes, and and the thing is, I mean, I use the term disinformation rather than misinformation right. when it's appropriate, and if it's, you know, I mean, a bot is not real; it's not conscious. So, I mean, it, could it be disinformation? You know, is it intentional because it's a bot? If the origin of it is a lie, I call it disinformation. You know, mm -hmm. some human being made that up and then they're just using the bot to propagate it. But, you know, there, there's another there's another book I got uh, here that's that I've been reading recently kind of lights my hair on fire. The Handbook of Russian Information Warfare. Wow. This is a manual from NATO written mm -hmm. for NATO commanders and soldiers to learn about how Russia conducts information warfare. And one of the first things that I read that really kind of scared me in this book is the idea that for Russia, we're always in an information war. I mean, information war is just part of what they do. So we I mean, we've been in an information war with Russia for 20 or 30 years. We just don't realize it. Hmm. Yeah. And then so, you know, now, so I actually kind of want to shift it a little bit away from your book just for a minute, because as sure. we were talking about before uh, the show started. So you and Andy. So just to be clear who Andy is. So Andy Norman, you guys wrote a great article on psychology. Uh, yeah. On psychology today, uh, just about the concept of mental immunity, how it's been attacked by different people. And so essentially, you guys point to this model, which when we look at misunderstanding, so this is all really hard, right? So this is all very kind of convoluted. And the idea is like, well, how can we tell, right? How can we tell what is in this and the conspiracy theory? And and so with the Mental Immunity Project, it's been attacked in the sense that the thinking is, well, I mean, you guys can't really say inherently, uh, let's say any particular truth or any particular truth or value statement rather is uh, inherently false or there's anything or anything about it, any symbols behind it that makes it so in the sense that they're markers, right? That there are these markers that can say whether that is or isn't true. So I love that you and Andy talk about a model, not necessarily your model, but a model that you pick up on uh, from, I think the book is called Foolproof. And so what's yeah. great about it is the uh, we're now talking about what is it that we can do or how can we start telling ourselves or how can we try to immunize ourselves from a misinformation right. because ultimately on the surface and this is what your book gets to the heart at uh or to the heart of is that it's really really difficult to tell that especially when it, let's say the evidence is convoluted and when it, there isn't so or there's just so much information and it's so the world is so inundated with it especially online on different websites what what do we or what do we start thinking about when we start thinking about these markers and how do we begin to kind of immunize immunize ourselves from this information mm -hmm. okay the first thing to realize is that 
the people who say, well, how can you tell what's disinformation and what's not? I mean, one man's disinformation is another man's truth. It's all equal. Or they'll say, well, how do you know what's true and what's false? There's no, you know, inherent way to tell, you know, how, how do we really know kind of a, you know, relativist view about truth right. or, you know, what, what you said before, how do we know what's a conspiracy theory and what's a conspiracy, you know? So it's all this shading of one into the other. That is a disinformation tactic. Okay, this kind of pushback to claim, well, you can't really tell the difference. I mean, the drawing of false equivalents right. is a disinformation tactic. Putin does it all the time. Somebody accuses him of something and he will just kind of pivot to, you know, accuse somebody else of the exact same thing, you know, to kind of make it sound like, you know, it's all gray. There's no black and white. You know, it's just all overlapping shadows of truth. And we really don't know. All right. So. I mean, what do you do in a case like that? First thing you do is remember the situation you're in. We're in a we're in an information war. Mm. Uh, if you're talking about misinformation, that is information that's false, but people genuinely believe it. I don't consider that to be warfare. I consider that to be, you know, an accident or a mistake. People think that something's true. It ends up not being true. Okay. The real target for me is disinformation because disinformation is intentionally false information that's shared by someone, uh, you know, as a lie because they get something out of it, just as you read at the beginning, right? And so once you frame it that way, once you realize, okay, we're in a, an information war, then you've got to you've got to develop some tactics to defend yourself and even to go on offense when you need to. And one of those is try to try to recognize, okay, what are the fingerprints of, you know, a false claim and a true claim? So maybe you can't tell, you know, just from hearing a claim, is that true or is that false? So what do you do? You begin to investigate, you begin to do some critical thinking. You, you know, maybe you'll ask yourself, you've got a story and you wonder, well, you know, is this fake or not? Mm -hmm. Maybe you'll look up the author to see, you know, have they published anything else? Are they actually a journalist or is just, just, you know, somebody with, uh, with a blog? Uh, where does their funding come from? Um, is this, uh, you know, so you've got all of these telltale signs, kind of the, the fingerprints for something like that. And one of the things that I love in Sander Vanderlinen's book, Foolproof, is that he talks about the fingerprints of um, misinformation. Um, and this is not to say, I mean, fingerprints, this doesn't mean that, you know, he he gives five things that are kind of the, 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 the signs that something might be misinformation. Right, the debate that, model. Yeah, that doesn't mean that you know, you tick off all those conditions, you know, that, that each one has to have every one of those conditions. Like the, mm -hmm. the point that uh, we made in psychology today to push back against the person who was attacking this view, uh, Dan Williams, he said, um, as, as I recall, he said something or other about, well, you know, but what, one of the things in the depict model was discrediting, you know, um, the, you know, but legitimate sources also discredit 
So how can you tell the difference? Well, again, that's a clue. That's something that tells you, ah, oh, they're discrediting, so investigate further. It doesn't mean they discredit. That's a sufficient condition. Therefore, it's you know misinformation or con conspiracy or you know whatever it is you're exam you're you're testing for. Okay, it means be on the alert. And so, I mean, I wish I could give you a rubric or you know an easy way to tell, but there is no easy way to tell. The only way to do this is to be on alert. We're in an information war, but we have tools and we need to use them to figure out what's true, what's false, what's a conspiracy theory, what's a conspiracy that has evidence, what's misinformation, and what's just, you know, false. Right. Yeah. And then, you know, thinking about it in terms, so I'm a psychotherapist. So thinking about it in terms of cognitive behavioral therapy, I mean, so the idea of inoculation makes a lot of sense to me because this is what a lot of what I do in treatment with patients is that. So we have something called the cognitive distortions. I mean, I'm not going to go through the entire list. Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily, it might not necessarily interest people, but the point is to say with these distortions, there are sort of types of fallacies and they're heuristics, right? As Danny Kahneman would call them. And so with these heuristics, I mean, we engage in them, but the point is to say that it's not that they're complete. So two things. So number one, it's not that they're completely false all of the time. Sometimes they're real and sometimes they actually do navigate to you, you to some version of reality. Um, and then the other thing with the kind of heuristics or whatever, again, whatever you want to call them, kind of, I would call them cognitive distortions, is that uh, fundamentally they, they're meant to inoculate you against not just irrational thinking, but also against mental illness. So for us, the idea is that, yeah. okay, if you're, let's say, mentally sound, and I kind of hesitate to use some of these terms, but let's just say, you know, for argument's sake, mentally sound. So if somebody isn't struggling or is diagnosable with a particular mental illness, one can argue, well, that's because they've been cognitively inoculated. So if let's say I mm -hmm. teach a person how to do what's called the thought record, it's pretty much a, an analysis. So a thought analysis, and I teach them about the distortions, essentially they're hopefully inoculated from further uh, episodes of depression or okay. further episodic anxiety. And so the point there is, is that for anybody to argue in our field that what we're doing is not inoculation, because a lot, and by the way, and the interesting thing is the correlations here are phenomenal. And so when somebody says, oh, okay, let's say uh, I have had a string of like mental illness type episodes, right? The idea is, is that the, these kind of viruses, these uh, distortions or again, cognitive distortions, what they do is they sort of spread into my life. So yes. I went from black and white thinking and then I overgeneralize. And when I teach the cognitive thought record, I often tell people, well, here's what you're going to see. You're going to see that each of these particular distortions are in some ways related to others. Not all of them are related to each other, but you'll see that if you do one, you'll likely do another and then another and then another. And it kind of comes full circle and people are like, oh my yeah. God, holy shit. And I'm like, right. I like so like overgeneralizing. If you're overgeneralizing, a lot of times you're probably black and white engaging in black and white thinking because overgeneralizing is sometimes yeah. and probably oftentimes founded in it. So what I'm saying is that it's interesting that there's been such blowback against the idea of mental viruses or immune systems and, and cognition. Yeah. Because for us, again, in therapy, it's something that we take as a fact since we see yeah. it all. Number one, we see it all the time. And there's so much research begging, sort of, you know, showing it, right? And it's sort of, it kind of at some point, I think it, I would say it, uh, it begs the question to even ask because i think again we all take it for granted so how do how do you think that happened why do you think there's such a big pushback to it well there's a lot of evidence in favor of inoculation theory going back to mcguire you know in the 1960s and i mean sander vanderlin and stephen lewandowski john cook i mean john rosenbeck these you know they've, they've done a mountain of research on this and and it is a real thing um i i guess it, so you asked me why there's pushback this, or, or why, why why doesn't it seem so obvious? That's that, that's kind of my question. Why why does it feel like uh, it's sort of mis misinterpreted or exaggerated? I, I mean, because again, for us, we see this stuff all of the time in treatment. Well, 
not everybody is aware of it. I mean, there's mm -hmm. that moment when the light bulb goes on, I'm sure in treatment when people understand, you know, oh, hey, look at that. And that's kind of what Andy and I have been talking about in a way is we want to empower people. We want to give them the tools that they can use to inoculate themselves against, you know, the myths and disinformation so that when it comes, I mean, you can debunk later, but that's harder because they're already infected. If you think of it that way, pre-bunking actually, it's been empirically shown works better. So you'll tell somebody in advance, you're going to be exposed to a conspiracy theory. Here's how conspiracy theories work. Be really careful when they say this, this, and this. And then when the person hears it, they go, oh yeah, I kind of know. It's like, you're good. Remember the first time you went to a, a, a car dealership to buy a car? Maybe you didn't know what you were doing. And then yeah. you found out later, oh yeah, all these shady tactics. But you know, if your dad had told you before you went, now be careful, they're gonna do this, they're gonna do this, they're gonna do this you would have been inoculated. You would have gone in and said, yeah, I kind of know what you're doing. Mm -hmm, and and sure. you know, it wouldn't have had such a big effect on you. So there is empirical evidence in favor of this. That's the first thing. Why don't people see it? Boy, I don't know. Why don't people see all sorts of things? I mean, I deal with science denial. You know, there are a lot of things right in front of the face that people, you know, don't see. The, the interesting question for me is the, philosophical response versus the scientific response versus kind of the political response and you know the scientific response is show me the evidence mm -hmm. and you know okay they've got the evidence they they move on there's a little bit of scientific debate about some of the um uh, you know ancillary questions but you know inoculation theory is solid in cognitive science now the philosophical question here's what i think's going on Philosophers love a demarcation criteria. Mm -hmm. They love for you to list, you know, the five necessary and mutually sufficient conditions by which you can demarcate between this and this. Right. So when you start listing, you know, something, you know, a, an antenna goes up and, you know, and they're saying, oh, but wait a minute, because we're trained for this. We're ready for this, right? Um, you know, what about this? What about that? You know, something has this condition, but it isn't a conspiracy. It doesn't have this, but it is. You know, we're always looking for that place to, you know, to poke the hole. Right. And so I think that that's, that accounts for some of the pushback because um, it's a very fun kind of a contrarian thing, you know, to be able to find a hole in somebody else's theory. Right. The things, the, the thing that really worries me is the pushback from politicians because i think that right now one of the things that you're seeing is a kind of a coordinated pushback against what's called disinformation studies mm -hmm. this idea that's now prevalent it was in the news today right about whether or not biden is allowed to talk to social media companies because by fighting disinformation he's actually colluding with them to um uh censor conservative voices boy jim jordan on his you know house and american committee or uh, activities or whatever he's calling it right what is what does he call that uh, i'm making a joke uh what, what does he call that committee the weaponization of government committee he's <laughs> calling in disinformation researchers and grilling them you know to tr because he's trying to show that um 
by studying disinformation, it's all really a ruse just to get conservatives to shut up, mm -hmm. which is wrong and yeah. provably wrong. And I've written on this and I'm happy to engage in that if you want to hear why I think that's wrong. The problem is I think that Jim Jordan also knows that it's wrong, which means that what he's doing is engaging in disinformation. He's using, he's attacking the people studying disinformation to clear the, the deck to, to use his own disinformation campaign to say that Trump was robbed in 2020, that Trump's a good guy, that liberals are censoring conservative voices, all this other stuff. So it's the propaganda response that bothers me. The academic stuff doesn't bother me so much because, you know, we we can duke it out kind of in-house in psychology today or wherever between philosophers, between scientists. We can come to some understanding. We know what the rules are. The ones that really worry me are when the politicians start to push back, because if they can convince enough people that any fight against disinformation is really censorship, then we are in deep trouble because right. we have to be able to push back against disinformation or we're in a war that we don't even know we're in yeah well in, yeah in the political space it actually is very very worrying because you know just having a really well-framed you know you could just be um just use sophistry in the best possible way or just appeal to authority there are a lot of different things i suppose you could do in the political space in order to just make yourself either seem correct or just have enough people agreeing with you in order just to kind of build that authority as well yeah um so i guess in that space i, I what, what do you think would be the best way to fight just have the most prevailing yeah uh i don't know it's not even a, the most prevailing perspective the most appealing perspective yeah and also the most amount of people can i also yeah. just add on to that so it's i nice. would say so yeah right so that question but then also how do we do that in a space where people tend especially authority figures tend to appeal to emotional reasoning yeah, it's a it's a good question. Uh, I mean, it, you've got to, but you've got to separate out in your mind the question: Can you convince them? Right. Because I don't think you can convince Jim Jordan. Versus, can you convince other people that what Jim Jordan is doing is, you know, not a genuine thing? Expose them. I mean, that's one thing I try to do in my work to show. Look what look what he's arguing. And I mean, one one philosophical tactic that I you know always love to use is make the person's argument stronger. You know, say to, say to Jim Jordan, okay, so we shouldn't fight any disinformation. It would be okay for people to post things on Twitter that say that, you know, you're going to be at such and such nightclub at such and such time, and here's where they can buy an AR-15 and, you know, go kill you that night. That would be okay with you? Oh, oh, why not? Why not? You know, try to, try to draw him out, see where the, you know, where the hole is in hmm. his argument. Um, I mean, what what disinformers do is they take a kernel of truth and then they 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 pack around it you know whatever it is they want you to believe and the kernel of truth here is that some governments do use the fight against disinformation to censor their opponents right russia does it russia has a law against fake news you violate that law you go to jail for 10 years turkey has one malaysia so I mean, we're kind of right to be worried about whether or not governments are allowed, when governments are allowed to decide for themselves what's fake and what's not, what's disinformation, what's not, 
they will trample all over the free speech rights of dissident, dissidents and opponents and will use disinformation, the fight against disinformation globally as an excuse to, you know, to persecute their enemies. Jim Jordan is exploiting that. Right. So, so we're right to be worried about that. Does that mean that any fight against disinformation by government is automatically censorship? Mm -hmm. No, there, there should be a way to do it. So how do you differentiate between the governments that are doing it to exploit, to, to jail their opponents and the ones that are not? Well, now mm -hmm. let's think of some criteria. I mean, that would be the careful uh, way to do it. Right. Mm -hmm. And if I ever get called before his, you know, star commission, that's what I'm going to talk about. Now, yeah, he's right. had, um, I mean, he got, he's had so many, I might end up getting called, but I mean, he keeps bringing in these academics and bullying them because the other thing he's trying to do is to stop them from studying disinformation. And these are private citizens who can't afford a lawyer. Uh, and, you know, he's, you know, they're getting death threats. And so, you know, they're intimidated. One of the, I won't say who it is, but one of the world's leading disinformation researchers kind of said that, you know, she was going to pull back because she was so concerned wow. about everything that had happened in front of Jim Jordan. So see, he's being successful in this. Yeah, right. um, so expose him. That's the, that's the main thing. I mean, once they get all on the same page and, you know, they're saying uh, that, um, well, here, here I, I suppose you can expose them. You can also take them on on the content. I mean, one thing, I had a long monster tweet today in which I got so upset about this judge's ruling about Biden that I, I, I said something that I'll repeat here. Mm -hmm. The judge's decision is not protecting, uh, is not, you know, against censorship. It's in favor of amplifying somebody's lies. Think of it that way. I mean, does free speech mean that every single liar should get an equally sized megaphone right. as the truth tellers? Because that's what happens on social media. Taking away the platform of a liar on social media is not censorship. You're not shutting them up. You're just refusing to amplify their disinformation. Right. I mean, so, so I might ask Jim Jordan, okay, so if you can't see that distinction, and you're a radical, you know, defender of free speech, then you might think that the Ku Klux Klan could have a rally in the park as long as they get a permit. Right, right. But do you have to go to that rally and help them hand out flyers? No, you don't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In the same way, Twitter and Facebook don't have to amplify uh, lies and hate speech. Right. Yeah. And, you know, so I, I misspoke earlier when I said begging the question, what I actually should have said is why would somebody question self-evident truths? And now that goes into something that you said before, which I really, really liked. So your thinking was, OK, if somebody is an expert, what actually helps is them going on some sort of public platform and admitting their mistakes. So the beauty of scientific thinking is not so much because yeah. this is this is the argument on the other side. The other argument is, well, you know, scientists make so much so many mistakes. Right. How can we trust them? You know, it's a whole history of errors. Right. But the distinction here is it that, is. yes, it's 
it's but it's an admittance of those errors. And so what I love is that when you're talking about experts, essentially what you're saying is that an expert isn't it's not like a, divi a sort of a divinity or it's not you know a divine king of some sort. It's not an, a, that an expert is infallible. But what happens is is that and this is so counterintuitive. And I know we even struggle with this because I know a lot of times you know we kind of make flubs on the podcast and we're like oh shit you know we got to kind of admit it. Uh, but I think for <laughs> right and, and it, it's it's a natural thing you know because we want to be looked at as experts to some right. extent you know so and we want people to watch us and so but what you're saying is that no the expert is actually able to admit their mistake to correct their mistake and to go on and say something along the lines of you know the reason why i do this is because this endeavor is important to us it's not about my status or who i am in this particular tribe or community what's most important is that you're getting something of value to this and or of this and so the thinking here is that when you're thinking about what it means to be an expert the expert is actually somebody who is fallible and again which is so counterintuitive and yeah. it's so distinct from those totalitarian regimes because those totalitarian those totalitarian regimes and even you know these gurus that we could definitely get into some of these people they never admit defeat they're no. never wrong never no never. look at yeah. look at trump um uh you think of a you know a cult do they does a leader ever admit that they're wrong this is one thing i mean i'm a philosopher of science and i wrote an earlier book called the scientific attitude in which i make the uh, the claim that what's really distinctive about science is not scientific method. It's a scientific attitude. It's this idea that you care about evidence and you care about evidence so much that you're willing to change your mind when the evidence changes. Right. Because what else would you do? You know, you're a scientist, which means that, and I mean, every scientist actually knows this. So scientists understand error bars they understand you know uncertainty and probability it just you know that's how they think so in science communication um you know when a scientist is an expert on some topic it's i i don't think there's anything wrong with them admitting what they do and they don't know or to say you know we have evidence for this we're still looking for evidence about that mm -hmm. because in the layperson's mind everything that they say is supposed to be absolutely true. And if there's ever any, you know, chink in the armor, then they're a liar. Right. So it should never be presented as if, you know, we know this with a fact absolutely certain, um, which is, you know, again, hard because there's a lot of evidence behind it. And, you know, you've got people trying to pick it apart. You say, oh, so you're telling me you, you don't know with 100% certainty that the vaccine won't harm me. Right. Well, I don't know that the next drink of water won't harm you or the baby aspirin that you took last night either. I mean, you know, it gets into a little bit more philosophy, talk about the problem of induction and, you know, fallibilism and empirical reasoning, but mm -hmm. they're right. You can't prove that, but science isn't about proof. It's about warrant given the evidence. So let's talk about the evidence. And the thing that I never, that I never really get about deniers is, why would you believe, think it was more rational to believe the theory with less evidence? Mm -hmm. That's just that's just not how that type of reasoning is supposed to work. So hell yes, scientists, any expert should be willing to say, here's what I don't know. And the magic thing about that kind of phrase is it raises credibility. Mm -hmm. It makes people think, oh, wow, if you're willing to admit what you don't know, I can I guess I can trust you about the things that you say you do know. And, you know, during the during the pandemic, when they were trying to you know see what was the message that was going to work, there was this Republican pollster named Frank Luntz, who had, you know, 20 Republicans in his focus group who were vaccine hesitant, we'll say. 
And he tried messages from politicians and sports stars. and Nothing worked, nothing worked. What finally worked was a scientist who came in and said, look, experts don't know everything, but here's what we've studied. Here's what we've tried. Here's what we think we know. Here's what we don't know yet, but we're trying to get the data. That worked. 19 out of the 20 filled out a survey at the end said they were more likely to take their vaccines. And the only one who didn't was the guy who left early. Right. So, I mean, that <laughs> message worked. Yeah. That, and it feels wrong when you're giving it because it feels like I'm not going to give these people uh, you know, a stick to hit me with. I'm never going to admit that I was wrong or that I could be wrong. That's right. the wrong instinct. Right. Yeah. And there's this exploitation of uh, this really poor way that we have of just naturally creating a sense of probability. And Danny Kahneman talked about this, that we're pretty much poor yeah. statisticians, you know, internally. Yeah, and so I, I, the the example that often comes to mind, and I do this all the time, and it's horrendous reasoning. So every time I go to get a physical every single year, what will happen is I'll tell myself, oh, my God, it's 50-50. It's, and it, it's based on the options. It's either I do have cancer or I don't have cancer. Oh, it's it just that but we do this all the time. We look at the options and we're like, great, cool. So two options means 50-50 chance. So a lot of times, and this is, I would say, how the merchants of doubt kind of, uh, this is their sort of bread and butter, where the idea is like, well, you know, we're on a kind of equal playing field. You have these experts who say that cigarettes do cause cancer, and then these experts that say they don't. So it's 50-50. So, I mean, those are decent odds. Maybe you should keep smoking. You know, uh, and again, how do you, what do you say against reasoning like that? My favorite, my favorite example here is, I don't know if you read uh, the Jack Reacher series. The, mm -hmm. the Lee, Lee Child uh, is a thriller writer, and he's got this character that's, you know, the, the toughest guy who ever came down the pike. And um, at a certain moment in just about every book, he's got this against all odds thing that he has to do. You know, well, I've got to go into this uh, headquarters and fight a hundred guys and beat them all. And then, you know, I'll get out with the nuclear device before it explodes. Mm -hmm. 50-50. I'll either make it or I won't. No, that's not 50-50. <laughs> yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh -huh. that's that's the appropriate way to, you know, to think. I mean, so if you explain it like that, maybe people understand. Uh, yeah. I mean, when people are actually put in a, when it's not dealing from fear, like when you're going to the doctor, I mean, when they're actually looking at a, um, when they're able to use, you know, uh, their, not the amygdala, but, you know, the other part of their brain, uh, they can usually do a pretty good job on that. You, you get him, get him to pay. Uh, how many experiments have they done where they actually get people to bet on their beliefs? Yeah. There's one thing to say you believe it; it's another thing to bet money on it. So you know people will, will yeah. you know go through that. But I I know the fear that you're talking about, and it's just uh, it's just the amygdala, as yeah. you know, because you're a therapist. You know, <laughs> you know what that is, but you can't stop it, can you? Well, it's, well, technically, you can through critical thinking. So, I mean, that's kind of the point of CBT exercises. But not to kind of uh, get away from what we're talking about. So, would you say, in terms of uh, in terms of now critical thinking and that sort of fifty fifty uh, kind of split that we have, or you know, whatever the options are, would you say that the kind of way that merchants of doubt sort of so would you say that for the most part, why being a merchant of doubt, why that works is because people tend to give up when it seems like it's just sort of up in the air, where the idea is, again, going back to smoking, yeah. right? So it's like we either maybe to think that smoking causes cancer or maybe it doesn't. So do you think that for the most part, like the regular person would just say, oh, I throw my hands up. If the experts can't answer this question, then maybe I should just keep smoking. What difference is it going to make? You, you've, you, the disinformer, I want to be careful here not to get a, give a clinic on how to do disinformation, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but the dis the disinformer is looking 
for a belief to exploit. Right. So, you know, they might look for something that you already want to believe and then give you a reason to believe it. Think about the cigarette companies. Who is their market? Who did they want to convince? Smokers. Mm-hmm. They they engaged in that whole disinformation campaign because they wanted to continue to sell cigarettes. Who who buys cigarettes? Smokers. Right. So they needed to give smokers a reason to keep smoking. And that was the creation of doubt. That was this idea that, well, the scientists don't, they can't prove it. Well, again, they can't prove anything. But, um, you know, by taking out ads in American newspapers, by starting their own research institute and hiring their own scientists, by by going around to the uh, journals and the newspapers and saying, ah, you know, you guys are so biased. Why don't you tell the other side of the story about smoking and lung cancer? They created enough doubt that the people who were already smoking thought, you know, hey, science, what do they know? You know, they tell mm-hmm. me it's bad for me. They tell me it's good for me. They tell me cholesterol hurts me. Now they tell me I need a little, right. you know, how, how do you know? So I'll just go ahead and do what I do. Well, right. that's, I, I don't even know what that fallacy is called. Maybe you do, but I mean- well, Confirmation bias of some sort. No, I mean, I I heard of a guy who jumped out of a parachute, out of a plane one time without a parachute, and he lived 50 50. Let's go ahead. No. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) So, one thing that I'm uh, very curious about, you did uh, allude to this a bit earlier as well, but in terms of how sort of the average person can maybe arm themselves against this information, what are some. So, now, one thing that I understood is that, of course, you know, you might look at the information somebody is um, espousing your way. You may uh, try to do research on your own. You like to, you might see where is their research coming from? Are they accredited? Does it or who is funding their research? That sort of thing. But what else can we sort of try to suss out in order to understand that what's being presented to me right now is disinformation, or it's something that I have to be. I do have to have my guard up a bit against like, like polarizing, like, yeah, saying something polarizing, for example, like emotional language is Mm -hmm. one when, when you, when I'm watching TV, uh, you know, watching MSNBC or CNN and I start to say, yeah, hmm, damn right. That's Mm -hmm. when I know I'm being manipulated. (laughs) I mean, I just kind of think, Ooh, they were, they knew just which button to push there because they know who their audience is, right? Right. So, I mean, was it Richard Feynman who said, you know, you're the easiest person to fool, you know, right. fool yourself. So, you know, my my thing with disinformation is I'm usually pretty attentive about whether somebody else is trying to fool me. The thing that I have to be careful of is when I kind of halfway agree with the message, when I, you know, I got that confirmation bias, that motivated reasoning working in my favor, and I'm looking for some reason that I'm that I'm right. One thing that I'll do to try to inoculate myself is to say, um, you know, how upset would I be if I were proven wrong on this? Or mm. what could what could convince me to change my mind on this? You know, know, those asking yourself those kind of questions, um, you know, so that you're being a little hard on yourself uh, is is one way to do it. I mean, this is one thing that I really like about Andy's work. It's kind of like the oxygen mask you put on yourself before you help others. Right. Mm -hmm. You learn how to be resilient yourself and then you can help other people learn how to be more resilient. But you've got to build up your own 
resilience, right? You've, you've got to figure out how to um, not just be somebody's fool or to be gullible. And, and again, you're the easiest person to fool. You know, I mean, look, look at how many scientists, um, if they're going to make a mistake, they make a mistake in favor of their own theory. They, they tend <laughs> not to give it away, you know, oh, no, I'm probably wrong. They tend to say, no, no, until you disprove it, I'm going to continue believing it, right? Nobody else believes it, but they continue to believe it. Well, mm -hmm. there's a cognitive bias for that, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, I mean, you know, under just understanding the concept of cognitive bias is an inoculation technique. I mean, how many are they up to now? Hundred or more cognitive biases? I mean, I can't even remember how many there were in thinking fast and slow. Oh right. my gosh, what a what a wealth of uh, you know understanding there. And one thing that uh, I like is um, there's sort of a different frame here, right? In terms of how to think about it. I think when I was asking the question, I was thinking, oh, how is it that you know uh, how do we change our relationship to the information that's coming into yes. us right yeah however what i like about what you said is it's essentially kind of it's not necessarily i mean you should be questioning information yes. that's coming your way but it's more of a question of how am i receiving the information that's coming my way like what's my particular like what are my reactions what's my take on this am i buying into this too easily why am i buying into this too easily what's the evidence to support that for example um oh this is making me react right now is this like me really in a state of critical thinking brainstorming or is this reactivity in me just something that just um doesn't want to either agree with this or it's just triggering me yeah. and it might you know lead me to other ways of thinking without me being vigilant enough or resilient enough to I I like I like what you said. I mean, I'm fooling myself all the time. What, one of the most important books I ever read is by Robert Trivers called The Folly of Fools, hmm. where he argues that the reason people are such good liars is because they begin to believe their own lies. Mm -hmm. you know, we, we're 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 self-deluded on a lot of things. I've learned that the place to exercise discipline is at the grocery store, not at home. Because if I buy those cookies, I'm eating those cookies. Right. Yeah. I'm not going to control myself when they're in the cabinet and nobody's home. But if I can control myself at the store and not buy them, then I'm okay. So I know that's a that's a trigger, right? Cookies. Yeah. So you know, well, I'm not. I'm I'm going to go through that aisle first when I've got all the self discipline, rather right. than last when I'm thinking, oh, look how good I was in those other aisles. I'm buying some damn cookies. So I mean. I, and I mean, that sounds ridiculous for a grown man to go through that, but, but I, <laughs> I, I'm just so sensitive to those sorts of issues now that I, that I am, as you put it, thinking about my relationship to the information and just curious about how my brain works. And when, when I do get fooled on things, right. Um, I love that. You know, I, I, I visited a flat earth convention. Wow. Um, with curiosity. Mm -hmm. You know, I wanted to know, how is it that you actually believe this? Can we talk about this? Can we talk? I don't want to talk about flat earth. I want to talk about why you believe this. And I had a great time. I mean, it was stressful, mm -hmm. <laughs> but, I, but I learned a lot because they did not think of themselves as deniers. They thought of themselves as skeptics and scientists. So, you know, we, I, I 
was there for 48 hours. We had a lot of conversations. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, I could never fall for something like that. And I came home and there was a little sleeve on my 5G router because, you know, a little Faraday cage because I had just gotten a 5G router and I thought, oh, I haven't really researched this yet. And I don't want all that radiation pointing at me because that's a trigger. Yeah, right? I'm an alarmist about health. So I bought a little Faraday cage. I put this little aluminum cage over it. I came home and I thought, look at that. And I did the research and I took it off. But wow. I keep the sleeve to remind myself I can fall for this. Now, I was not, you know, attacking a radio towers. <laughs> but, you know, I had a Faraday cage on my router because I I had heard a couple of things. And I was so busy studying disinformation and denialism that I didn't have time to chase that one down. Yeah, right, but but doesn't but oh man, but that's so wonderful, Del, because what that says about you is that you're not totally against conspiracy theorists, you know, whatever you want to kind of phrase that as. So it's not like so. What I love about something like that is that if so, if let's say the person is a hardcore conspiracy theorist and they hear you saying something like that, I think the thinking would be like, oh wow, so he's not our enemy. I think he he. If we I want to know their a, evidence, yeah, yeah. Tell, yeah. Tell, you know, right. one of the most powerful things I did with the flat earthers is to say, convince me. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm here. There's 650 of you. There's one of me. Convince me. Mm -hmm. And they would give me their best evidence. And I'd go, why would I believe that? I mean, you just told me that every picture from NASA is fake. Why should I believe that picture you're holding up? <laughs> you know, or, sure. uh, you know, yeah. so, I mean, <laughs> we, we mixed it up. I, I took one guy out to dinner for two hours and he wow. was on stage. So I knew he was trying to get people into flat earth. I was trying to get him out. He <laughs> used some of the same tactics. So we had a really good conversation. You know? mm -hmm. But I mean, I, I tried to go in there with respect and calm and patience and listen to them. Mm -hmm. And I didn't, you know, get anybody to tear off their lanyard and say, you know, what a fool I was. That kind of wasn't the point. The point was I wanted to go in and hear what they had to say. It was a bit of a warm up for me because I did want to convince climate deniers to change their mind. And I thought, okay, that's a little more complex. Start with flat earthers and see how it works. Thing I discovered is that they, re they all reason in the same way. This was mm -hmm. based on work by, uh, uh, John Cook and Stephen Lewandowski and some other people before them, the Hoofnagel brothers, there are five steps of science denial reasoning. And every science denier hits all five of them. And so that was really fascinating because now when I hear somebody and I think, well, they are denier, I kind of, you know, I've got philosopher, I've got these criteria, I go through there. Wait, can we go through them? Yep. What are they? Oh yeah, absolutely. They cherry pick evidence. They believe in conspiracy theories. They engage in illogical reasoning. They rely on fake experts and denigrate real experts. And this is my favorite. They think that science has to be perfect to be credible. Mm. Those five steps, every single science denier uh, expresses those five steps. Anti-vax, anti-evolution, flat earth. Um, what did I leave out? Climate denial. Mm -hmm. Here's the interesting part, too. Uh, the big Trump's big lie hits all five. Hmm. That's denial. Right. I mean, that maybe sounds like a trivial thing that everybody else knew, but when I realized, oh my God, cherry picking, illogical reasoning, conspiracy, yeah, it hits all five. That, that's when I, that's actually when I started to write the new book on disinformation, because I'd been engaging with science denial all these years, and then I realized oh my God, this problem has now 
morphed. It's not just about science anymore. It's about reality. It's about facts in general. And so it's not just science that's under threat. It's democracy. I mean, if we don't get this right, we could be headed toward autocracy. That's why I'm so engaged on this. I'm not just talking to flat earthers anymore. Okay. I, I'm not, I, I'm, this latest book was for me, the missing piece because I'd thought about denial all these years. And then I finally realized the cause of denial is disinformation. These people don't wake up one day wondering whether the California wildfires are started by a Jewish space laser. They're fed that as disinformation, right. which means that they're being lied to, which means they're victims and there's somebody behind it. And again, I sound like a conspiracy theorist, except I can tell you who's behind it for any of those you know, denialist campaigns. Oh, can we talk about that? We can pick one. Yeah. Uh, let's go to climate denial. Okay. Well, there's a lot <laughs> on this uh, written. Uh, Jane Mayer has, uh, you ever read the book, uh, Dark Money? Oh, I saw the documentary out and I've never read yeah. the book. Yeah. So um, a lot of the people who are behind this, so you know, you, you referenced Merchants of Doubt a couple of times that, uh, Naomi Reskis and Eric Conway's brilliant book about the tobacco, um, that created a framework, a blueprint that was followed by all later science denial. So, I mean, and this one is actually pretty easy because if you look at what the cigarette companies did to create doubt so they could continue selling cigarettes, it's the exact same thing that the fossil fuel companies did to create doubt about whether climate change was real. Mm -hmm. um they funded the, they they covered up memos they you know funded their own research scientists their own research scientists knew about climate change back in the 70s so i mean they had those smoking gun memos about about cigarettes they had them about climate change too there's a lot of money behind climate denial right that's that's the the special interest there now that one was also politicized it, it you know it became a left right issue wasn't always that way i remember not that many years in the past uh nancy pelosi and newt gingrich were sitting on a couch talking about fighting climate change maybe right. you don't remember that but it was on tv you know you guys were kids then mm -hmm. but um you know this this was in my life not that many years ago but it became politicized vaccines became politicized Used to be you had liberals and conservatives who were anti-vaxxers, and you, you still do to a certain extent. But after COVID, they're, it, it swung way right. Mm -hmm. Why? Because people are not just interested in money, they're interested in power. Right. And once you can politicize, I mean, if you think about it from a politician's point of view, if you can polarize people about a factual issue, you're teaching them to hate. You're mm -hmm. teaching them to form a team and see the other people who don't believe what they believe is the enemy. Right. And you can do anything you want with them. Mm. What, what, who's going to believe the facts from their enemy? They don't trust them. That was the conclusion I came to uh, in the, in the, the book, uh, how to talk to a science denier. Science denial isn't about facts. It's about trust. Right. If you, this information doesn't just, give you false information it teaches you to distrust the people 
who believe the truth. Right. And what's so and, awful and then, you know, the rest follows. Yeah. And what's so awful is that, I mean, we know from the data that essentially beliefs are fundamentally based in tribalism. So the yes. idea is that the biggest predictor of what your sets of beliefs are, are pretty much what your team is. So if you're a Republican, yes. you're going to believe this set of beliefs. If you're a Democrat, these other ones. So to think sometimes that, well, you know, Democrats are the most rational ones, uh, not necessarily the truth. A lot of times, you know, we're pretty much engaged in the group think. So now I want to actually segue into a yes. really, really difficult conversation. So, okay. Now I, I want to kind of give a little bit of an anecdote and then I want to get into this. So a long time ago, and I would say, thank God, it was a long time ago, but not that long ago, in the early 2010s, I was actually, uh, I was a somewhat of a fundamentalist uh, in terms of uh, just, I wasn't a Christian, but it would do religious beliefs. I actually believed that there was no such thing as evolution. Uh, the thinking was that how could monkeys evolve into men and yada, yada, right. such and such. So, I didn't know that. I didn't I know that. You know, I, knew, I knew the conspiracy thing. See, yeah, I told him my story about 5G and this loosened him up. I know, right? So yeah, but so it all comes together, right? So the conspiracy stuff and then the anti, yeah, anti-science. I mean, it's all the same stuff. So here's now my thinking. So what really helped me besides, so I had a really great college mentor, Dr. Timothy Strube. So he was great and he was really fundamental in my change. But another thing that really helped me in terms of pop culture was, I'm sure you remember this, the Bill Nye debate with Ken Ham. I think yes. it was about 12 years, right? So yeah. the thing was, the thing was with that, he got a lot of backlash and I mean, still obviously people do. Um, and so the thinking was, well, why would you debate this lunatic. But for somebody like me at that time, because of my mentor, I was not necessarily on the fence, but I was at the very least willing to listen to it. And so even after I heard the debate, I was like, eh, I'm not so sure. But then after a little bit of time, it sort of set in and I was thinking like, okay, clearly Bill Nye was right. So Here's you have people like, let's say, uh, I mean, I hesitate to kind of involve him, but I, I hope he, he wouldn't take this as a disrespect thing. Uh, so like Michael Shermer, right? So Michael Shermer will say something like, well, we ought to debate everybody. And, you know, he's gotten a lot of backlash to it. People are saying, well, why would you do that? You know, you don't want to give platforms to these people. Yeah. Uh, and there's definitely a lot of truth in that. But for somebody like me who heard Bill Nye and who heard the debate, and especially this fundamental question of they ask Ken Ham, you know, what would change your mind? Ham says nothing. What would change your mind? Bill Nye says evidence, right? Boom. And I was like, whoa, this is great that, that you know? was a peak moment uh, and right. those debates are not usually that good <laughs> that exactly Exactly. Right. So now you're thinking, OK, so for a lot of people who are either on the fence or at least maybe could be on the fence, something like that was incredibly important for them. But now, obviously, you have and I again, this is not necessarily a criticism, but you have this idea that we shouldn't platform these people. But then how do we begin to reach people like me at that time? So when somebody like Bill Nye was willing to debate, whereas now, let's say you have somebody like RFK and I was just listening to Sam Harris and Sam Harris, right. like never, don't ever platform this guy. I wouldn't even have him on my show. Right. right? But then how do we address? that because somebody like Michael Shermer would say, well, I mean, he is a presidential candidate and for you to just dismiss yeah. him altogether doesn't really make much sense. It's a, it's a vexed question and I'll try to unvex it a little bit. Um, some of this is just my opinion. Mm -hmm. When you, when you agree to debate a denier, you've got to recognize that you're giving them an equal platform which in some ways means that they've already won the debate hmm. because usually they're, you know, trying so hard to get attention for their point of view that, you know, just by debating them, they're, you know, you, you've given them what they want. Now, there are some cases in which the disinformation, the denial is so virulent, you know, so it's so out there, it's so widespread that, you know, maybe you need a debate to, you know, to debunk, but, the, there's there's always a problem 
I mean, it sort of depends on the circumstance and the person, I guess, because I mean, I can kind of see the point of view of, you know, don't give them a platform, but I have a lot of respect for Michael Shermer, you know, in being able to say, we, you know, we need to be able to push back. Um, if that is true, though, you have to apply, don't you have to apply it to everybody? I mean, do do you? Are there certain people that you wouldn't debate because their views are so so wrong? I, I mean, does it matter the topic? I suppose if it's an empirical debate, you know, I'm not talking about a hate speech sort of a thing where you know you you just don't even want them to, be able to make their points. An empirical debate should you allow that? Then you face this problem, though. Empirical questions are not decided through debate. Mm-hmm. they're they're decided through evidence so you know what can you say i mean the thing that i respect the most about bill nye in that exchange is he wasn't talking about what the evidence is he just said provide me with evidence i mean so he was talking about something that they call technique rebuttal not content rebuttal he was talking about why you not what you believe but why you believe it and mm-hmm. that moment when you can get a denier to say, no, this is a matter of faith. That is a searing moment. It was searing for you to change your mind. It can sometimes be searing for the person to realize. I mean, that was my other question that I asked at Flat Earth. What evidence, if I had it in my back pocket, would change your mind? And if they say nothing could change my mind, I've got them. They're Mm -hmm. not a scientist at that point. And to their credit, most of them understood that. But, you know, some of them would say proof. And I'd say, well, I can't give you proof. There is no such thing. I mean, why do you believe in proof? That's not what we're talking about here. Hmm. So it's a, I, like I said, I'm not going to be able to completely, you know, unvex it. But so, so many of those, so many of those debates are so terrible and they're kind of rigged from the beginning. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, the ham nigh debate was the you know the kind of the ideal one if you're going to do one but i would watch if if michael Shermer debates rfk jr i'm going to watch that i know right i'm going to watch that on the other hand i have absolutely no objection whatsoever that peter hotez doesn't want to debate him because it's that split screen equal you know, false equivalence thing. Who who wants that? Can I just say one final thing on the Bill Nye debate? So my my last, uh, so there is actually one criticism of it, and I actually think it was a major one now looking back on it. So there was a point where Ken Ham said something really, really horrendous, but it really resonated with the audience. So Ken Ham said, it's not that I deny the archaeological evidence. So he said, Bill Nye and I have essentially the same types of evidence or the same evidence. And so the only difference is that we have different interpretations of it. So like for me, this is evidence of God and creation. And then for him, it's evidence of evolution. And I'm thinking, oh my God, that's how he got them. So essentially what he's saying is that like, hey, it's kind of all up in the air, right? You just kind of take the evidence and it is what it is to you, right? And yeah, there there you go. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that I would say was probably the major flaw. So if there were, and likely there were plenty of people unconvinced and i would say it's because of something like that because the idea was well you know this is to ham evidence for creationism and again to bill nye it's evidence for evolution so we don't really know just pick one yeah i'm sorry Alan, so you want ex- to ex- except it it's not evidence against evolution he's uh wrong and needed to be slapped back on that so right right yeah. One thing that I, w- I wish, um, if, if let's say people like um, Shermer and Peter Hotez or whoever 
would have debates is so i don't know if if you 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 might be aware of this uh paying burn classics they were hosting a whole bunch of debates uh between like jordan Pe jordan peterson sam harris i think it was eric weinstein uh some some other uh figures and what they would do in these debates is it was structured a certain way so let's say it was peterson versus sam harris and they had like a mediator the whole point of this particular debate was you had to do something called steel manning the other person's yeah, argument yeah. in order to um, then be able to give your piece, right? So, yeah, it would be cool if we could have kind of debates structured in that way. This way, you can't necessarily create that environment where somebody could kind of use, I mean, they probably will end up doing this inevitably, but at least avoid as many, you know, of those um, underhanded tactics uh, in an argument, at least by, you know, stating the other person's argument, why you think it's correct. And then giving your piece, you might actually be able to come to some sort of a, um, integration of knowledge, you know, maybe uh, towards the end of that particular debate. Um, that's a that's yeah. a pretty high standard. Right? Right. So could 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 you actually get there, though? Yeah, hard to say, hard to say. Hopefully both parties are actually interested in the truth, but that's asking a you, lot. You'd depending have. Who you're, uh, yeah, um, I mean, it it it. <laughs> It, it does depend. I mean, I had a lot of individual conversations with science deniers. I don't think I'd have a debate mm. because then they'd say, oh, look, I got, you know, I mean, it's not like I'm a, well, they'd say, oh, look, I got this guy to debate me. Yeah. He's written a book on science denial and I got him to debate me. I won. Right. Right. I'm mm. off the floor with the guy, no matter what happened, you know, they would say that. No, I'm, I'm, yeah. not, I'm not sure I'd, I'd want to do that. You know, um, I, I I think it was Joe Frazier that this story was about. I'm, I'm pretty sure it was Joe Frazier, the boxer, that, you know, he was the heavyweight champion of the world. And people would come up to him drunk in a bar and say, I could beat you. And he'd yeah. say, yeah, you probably could. Uh-huh. Because he wasn't going to get in the ring with them. I mean, as satisfying as it would have been to just pound the guy to dust, he was Joe Frazier. He didn't have to get in the ring. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's who would take that guy seriously. Right. You know, who the drunk on the, on the, the bar stool. So, you know, th there's a, I don't know. I, I guess I'm, I'm of, I'm of two minds about it. I, I personally would not engage in a debate like that because I just think there's, I'm just too worried about amplification of disinformation. In some ways, that's what they want. They want right. to get a platform, and I just don't want to give them a platform. Yeah, I think what you're sense. saying is that the trade-offs wouldn't be worth it. Because like for somebody like me in this case, I mean, I was an anomaly. I would say not many people go off from like, you know, the super conspiracy theory side and then become a little bit more liberal. And, you know, I mean, it's not even like I'm like a democratic socialist, which is like another kind of conspiracy side. I'm not going to get into why, but it is. I want to ask you a question, though. Sure. Based on my reading of the anecdotal literature, yep. in my reading, every single person who has ever come back from what you described did it the same way. Mm. They were, it, it was based on a trusting relationship with someone who took them seriously as a person enough to talk to them. And once the trust was built, the denier convinced him or herself. 
Is that what happened to you? That's exactly what happened. Yeah. So, <laughs> when, that's what I, so yeah. When, when I mentioned yes. when I mentioned Dr. Tim Stroop, so I'll I'll yeah. give you kind of I'll give it to you in a nutshell. So fundamentally, what I did because I was such a fucking asshole, I sat like right in the middle of the first row, and I would just debate him on everything. And he used to kind of joke with everybody else, and he would say, "Well, yeah, Leon and I disagree on everything." And we'd be like, "Ha ha ha!" And then he'd say, "But he's wrong about everything," and I'd be like, "Oh, little does this prick know." And no, I was the one who was wrong about everything. So what he told me, and this this was really game changing and shaping. So he said to me, he said, look, man, he's like, I'm actually not even trying to change your mind. The reason why I give you these books and I send you articles is for you to actually understand what the other side is arguing, because I think the information you're getting is pretty wrong. So what you're getting is, you know, the straw man argument. So he's like, if you want to be great at debating, if you really want to challenge me, he's like, know what we're actually saying on this side. And I'm like, okay, great. I'm like, your challenge accepted. And then as you're reading more and more of this literature, yeah. you're like, oh my God. And he's like, oh, ha, you disagree now, do you? Right. And then he's like, what yeah, a genius. Yes, he was yeah, right that's the yeah. way to do it yeah and he was super patient and i also appreciated that he was super complimentary so the thing that for me was super endearing was the fact that even so he would actually still write me recommendations even though he i was like a randian at the time he's like listen i don't buy into any of this bullshit but he's like no i will still write you recommendations he's like he's like here's the thing that i don't really get about you he said fundamentally i think you're actually a really good person but then you have this philosophy of life that doesn't kind of fit with your behavior so for i think he said something to me like i give you the benefit of the doubt because i don't even think a lot of times you believe in this shit and i'm like like, damn, oh my God, I he, think that, yeah. he broke through the polarization right. by building trust. Yeah. Bravo. Yeah. Yeah. So that's good. all right. And you know, it leads us to be so all my theory is confirmed. My yeah. theory is confirmed. <laughs> yeah. And in that respect, very much so. I cherry so, yeah. picked off. Yeah. So I would just say, and you know, as we're beginning to wrap up is that like, yeah, so because I'm probably an anomaly here, that it's probably not worth the trade off to debate, because I think what you're saying is that even if let's say one or two people, and even again, I'm an anomaly because of, of Tim, because it's not even like it's just this debate that changed my mind. There were other antecedent factors, right? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I think what you're saying is that if we do give somebody a platform, it's just not worth the inherent risk. He, here's, here's maybe to, to put a, a bow on it. It, whether a debate works or not is a question of are you able to debunk somebody after they're already convinced of the wrong thing and what i'm wanting to do in the new book is to keep somebody from being disinformed in the first place mm -hmm. it's kind of like think of it as people who are sick some people are already sick and you've got to try to heal the sick. That's what I was doing when I went to the Flat Earth Convention, when I talked to um, climate deniers. I'm trying to heal the sick. They're victims of somebody else's disinformation. I'm trying to bring them back. Mm. And that is a good thing to do. Yeah. But you don't get yourself out of a pandemic by just healing the sick. Right. You've got to go to the source of the problem and stop it. And the source of the problem in the infodemic is disinformation. And it's specifically, it's amplification. We're not going to stop the creators from creating disinformation. We're not going to stop some of the believers from believing it once they hear it. The place to clamp, to clamp down, the pinch point, is amplification. It's what the social media companies are doing, why the journalists are constantly confused and not talking about disinformation, always talking about misinformation, because then they're let off the hook. Then... Then it's, uh, you know, a euphemism. Then it's, you know, oh, who's responsible? Nobody. We really can't tell. Right. Uh, th this is the problem. I mean, 
if we're actually in an information war, we need to do more than heal the sick. We need to stop the disinformation from having the effect that the other people want it to have. And that's why I like Sandra Vanderlinen's work and Andy's work and you know the other work, Kahneman's work that we've been talking about, because it teaches you how to push back you know, before you're infected with it. People do come back. But if we're waiting for that, we're going to be uh, electoral dictatorship before we, you know, get enough critical mass back over. We've, we've got to do something now, um, which, again, you know, it's hot language in the book because I think we're in a crisis. I think that, you know, this is a five alarm fire and that, you know, a lot of people said, oh, you know, well, Trump, he's out of office. We don't have to worry anymore. I think we're we're actually in in sort of pretty precarious position right now. And because the problem is no longer just about science, it's about reality. So more than just science is at risk. I think democracy is at risk. So, I mean, it's kind of an unusual book for somebody with an academic background in philosophy of science to write, but I'm a public philosopher. And, you know, I care about you know, taking the things that philosophers are concerned about, truth and reason and logic and science, and applying it to contemporary problems. And this is the problem of our time, I think. Right. And so I just wanted to get in the arena and try to wake up as many people as I could about this problem. And if any folks are out there, you know, listening and they want to learn more, they can go to my website, uh, leemcintyrebooks.com and see what else I've written you know what other events i'm i'm doing uh they can write me a, a email if they want uh you know this i mean i've been working on the same problem for a long time i didn't really get it until the last two until about two years ago january 6th is what woke me up mm -hmm. and then i realized this is a much bigger i haven't come close to solving this yet because i have not talked about the fundamental role of disinformation and that's what i wanted to do in the new book Absolutely. I can't wait to definitely officially buy it on August 22nd when oh, it's out. Oh, bless your heart. Thank you. And one thing, I think I'd be doing a disservice if I don't ask this. I am minding yes. the time. I'm trying to do this quick. So do you think that probably what government can do is, so this is an idea I've had. Maybe you've mm -hmm. had this idea as well, Mitch, which is, so if we have certain algorithms, right, that may show you things to keep you on site longer, you know, whether it's something emotionally triggering or something related to what you usually search for, which is fine. I, I get I get it from a marketing standpoint. I wonder if there could be something like some sort of a law that might not allow for at least in the political domain to like to, to maybe alter algorithms, not to give you the same information over and over um, again. Uh, I haven't worked. I haven't suspect. Yeah, yeah. yeah uh, I I think there's something to this idea, and I, I'm going to credit here Stephen Lewandowski, who's a, you know cognitive scientist at University of Bristol. I heard him give a paper one time, where he, um, it, it was it's quite clever what he wants to do. He doesn't turn to Congress to, um, regulate social media or you know to be the arbiter of truth because they're just not going to do that and they're kind of ham-fisted about it mm -hmm. what he wants them to do is to legislate transparency that, that 
we we don't need Congress or the president or anybody else in government to decide what's true and what's false. I mean, that's just going to be controversial. Mm -hmm. What we need is something that should make both Democrats and Republicans happy, which is that these algorithms that the social media companies use should be not black boxes, uh, you know, available only to the senior engineers at those companies. We shouldn't have to wait for a whistleblower to know whether they're danger, a danger to the public. We should have a, a commission of um, academic experts who are able to study these with all of the user data animized and, you know, the, whatever waiver, you know, they need to sign about this just so that we can head off public harm before it happens. Right. I thought that was a brilliant idea. And mm. I talk about it a little bit in the book too, because uh, in crediting Stephen, because um, I mean, what a, what a great solution to this problem, right? This Right now, the social media companies don't have a lot of incentive to do more than they've done. Mm -hmm. And, you know, after this ruling by the federal judge yesterday, they probably aren't going to feel a lot of heat that they're going to be regulated. But what if Congress said, OK, but yeah, but you got to be more transparent. You know, you've you've had some near misses. I mean, you've are maybe even thrown an election because of what you guys did. You know, we need more transparency. So we're going to have a you know commission of 12 academics who study this. I think that might be part of the solution. I like mm -hmm. that idea very much. Hmm. Yeah, it yeah. sounds great. Yeah, and then so the last thing I'll say is that it's interesting because it's a fundamental and established truth in psychotherapy and psychology that it's much easier to prevent trauma than it is to cure it. So one can argue that mental immunity and you know cognitive immunity is essentially the correlate to that. It's much easier to inoculate people than it is to prevent them or to after the fact to cure them or treat them of a you know poor thinking or yeah. let's say yeah disease thinking. Yeah, it, it 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 makes it makes complete sense. We could spend another hour talking about psychotherapy. I'd be really interested to hear some of the models that you're you draw an analogy here to, but um, uh, have me back someday. Absolutely. Oh my God, this was oh my God, this episode was phenomenal. This is so cool. Two years in the making for me. I really I've really been trying to get you on, so I'm so happy that you come on. Uh, <laughs> so it shouldn't be that hard. I would have said yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I you, well, you got to ask. You know. I, I hear you. Yeah, I think I did send you an email a couple of years ago, but whatever. Uh, okay. Did you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if, here's He's the thing. Lying. We we weren't established back then. I wouldn't be surprised if you were just like, ah, who are these guys? And I have other things to do. It's okay. So, but yeah. I, I will check my files. I gotcha. It's okay. Um, okay, so listen, I, I mean, I could be wrong. Maybe I thought of it, but I think I did. Okay, so Lee, if we wanted to... If we, <laughs> really if we wanted to find you on social media and buy the book, where can we do that? Okay. Uh, again, leemcintyrebooks.com. Mm -hmm. It's got links for all my social media. It's got links to buy the book. Um, you know, it's available right now for pre-order on uh, on Amazon and you know everywhere else. Uh, books are sold. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, uh, and it's it's not out until August twenty second. But I just heard from my publicist today that they're sending me advanced copies of the first printing. So it has some of it actually has been printed. It just oh. hasn't been shipped yet. So, you know, um, sometimes if people pre-order, they get the book, you know, faster than they could get it any other way. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes I pre-order my own book just to see how fast I get it. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, it, it's it's usually, you know, one of the online places comes faster, but I love my local independent bookstores. So um, 
you know, please uh, ask them to carry it as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on. This was excellent. You bet. Excellent. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Take we'll care. talk to you soon. Have a good night. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. That was awesome. So everyone, if you want to follow us, you can follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, where it sees underscore podcast, like, subscribe, hit the bell on YouTube. And again, thank you so much for watching and see you next time.